We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right the this is the final episode in the story of the man who the Anzacs revered, Fighting Mac. Mel Gibson told the story of Desmond Doss, the Seventh-day Adventist who refused to kill. Rejected by the men in his platoon and by the army, but at the Battle of Okinawa on one day, 5th May 1945, saved the lives of 75 men. His story is told in the movie Hacksaw Ridge. This story is about a man who risked his life for two and a half years in the bloodiest fighting from being with the Australians at Gallipoli and then on the Western Front in Europe. A man whose repeated acts of bravery and selfless devotion to the men of the Anzac earned him their undying respect and the undying respect of their families and loved ones back in Australia until the day that he died on 26 July 1947. Then as the people that knew him and knew of him died, his memory has been entirely forgotten in this country, tragically. He was a man mobbed wherever he went when he returned to Australia from World War I, a man who was invited to give one of the three eulogies for the famous General John Monash after his funeral, with the first eulogy being delivered by Sir Harry Chevelle, the commander of the legendary Australian Light Horse. After the war, Mac was the guest of honour at many Anzac Day services. At the end of those services, it was not uncommon for his hands to be bleeding after shaking so many hands, so many hands desperate for his touch. Yet today, no statues of this man stand for the modern haters of the left to tear down. Maybe that's a good thing. What isn't a good thing is that this remarkable man who makes the heroism of Desmond Doss, told in Mel Gibson's movie Hacksaw Ridge, pale into insignificance. But Mac is almost totally forgotten, a fate that reflects poorly on us all. William Fighting Mac Mackenzie arrived back in Australia from the battlefields of Flanders in early March 1918. His AIF appointment as Salvation Army chaplain was terminated on 17 March 1918. Mac's first public appearance after he'd returned to Australia was at the Melbourne Exhibition Building on 11 March. It was the largest building with the biggest capacity in Melbourne, and the organisers knew that it wasn't big enough. Crowds started to queue up to make sure they got a place in the hall from 2pm on the day. 7,000 people are guessed to have crammed into the hall. It was impossible to get a firm number. The aisles and the platform were packed with people. 1,500 of the crowd were blind and maimed veterans who had already returned from the war, anxious to get another dose of their favourite chaplain. A bodyguard of 50 diggers carried Mac into the hall on their shoulders. Mac was greeted by a tornado of clapping and cheers, as one eyewitness, Lieutenant Colonel Bond, recorded in his book. Mac got the same reception wherever he went throughout Australia. The Sydney Daily Telegraph reported that while in Sydney, his feet never touched the ground from the time his men met him at the train until he landed on the town hall platform. 
Mac attended the Salvation Army tent for the Easter services in Sydney from Good Friday on 29 March to Easter Sunday on 31 March. Salvation Army's Commissioner Hayes' wife, he was Mac's boss, spoke of seeing one mother whose son had been blown to pieces by artillery shells come to speak to Mac. As was his manner, he had tenderly gathered the boy's remains and conducted a Christian burial for him on the battlefield of Gallipoli. The boy's mother had travelled nearly 500 kilometres to thank him personally for his act of kindness and decency. Commissioner Hayes' wife recorded the mother's words to him. That dear hand, she said, with tears flowing down her face as she clasped the chaplain's rough yoon hand, oh, may I kiss the hand that laid my boy to rest. This was a story typical of Mac. Many people travelled hundreds of kilometres to hear him speak. Often they came clutching one of the thousands of letters that he wrote to the families of diggers who had died, telling the family of the circumstances of their loved one's death. Mac's legendary, phenomenal memory meant that his letters gave them the time and place of their loved one's death, giving grieving relatives a comforting final glimpse of their son, husband, brother or father. Mac gave long speeches, not about himself, but about the boys, stories of their heroism. In mid-1918, an officer of the 4th Battalion, still in Flanders, read the newspaper accounts of the magnificent reception that Mac was getting everywhere back home in Australia. He wrote to his mother, "'I'm very pleased that old Padre Mac got such a splendid reception in Australia, but he more than deserves anything that he gets like that, for he has helped wonderfully in making the AIF what it is, and I might say that at present our force in France, through these recent happenings, are considered by everyone to be nothing short of marvellous. In 1919, Salvation Army Commissioner Henry Howard, Chief of Staff at the Army's UK headquarters, wanted to test the stories of how popular Mac really was. Or perhaps they were just stories. He insisted that Mac walk with him from the Salvation Army's headquarters in Goulburn Street to the Sydney Town Hall to check out arrangements for Mac's appearance there that night. The distance was two city blocks, about 500 metres. An hour later, Commissioner Howard returned to the Salvation Army quarters with Mac. He was asked about the town hall. In mock disgust, he said, Town hall? I have not seen it. I haven't been out of this street. Once they'd left Salvation Army headquarters, people in the street recognised the giant familiar figure of Mac and pressed in on him for a word. This was so typical of the celebrity status that Mac enjoyed. Mac was called to speak to meetings of the state parliaments of Victoria and New South Wales. Wherever Mac went, if he heard a report of a sick or dying Anzac digger nearby, he would drop what he was doing and head off to see the man. At one meeting, Mac told the story of a widow whose son had been killed at Gallipoli while trying to rescue a wounded comrade. The boy had been the widow's only support, and since his death, she had fallen on hard times. Mac learnt that she had become the victim of a loan shark who had taken advantage of her. Something like £20 was needed to pay the loan shark off, and the audience raised the necessary money for her in a flash as soon as Mac had finished telling her story. In her book Anzac Pandre, author Adelaide R. Cow wrote, No deserving digger could appeal to Mackenzie in vain. Indeed, as his CEO remembers, he was in the habit of helping even the not-too-deserving. While Padre Mackenzie was the friend of all, from the highest to the lowest, he was particularly kind to the lame ducks 
and was always quietly at work amongst them for their own good. He knew all the drunks in his own battalion and brigade, if not the division, and nobody knows how many, approached him for a loan. Many repaid him at some time or other, but I fear that a good many did not, and the Padre was out of pocket for a considerable sum. Soon after his return to Australia, Mac was offered a government job that would have earned him a lucrative sum in those days of £2,000 a year. He turned it down. He never sought to make money from his fame. The amount that Mac gave the needy ex-soldiers will never be known. He was ever aware of the horrendous sights and conditions his boys had endured during the war. One ex-officer advised the Salvation Army that he wished to donate a substantial amount of money to Mackenzie. With his voice trembling with emotion, he said, Mac saved me once, body and soul. But not one penny of this money was touched by Mac for his own personal use. Mac was happy to continue assisting his boys, and never once did he regret his ample generosity to them. To fighting Mac, the Anzacs were always magnificent men, the bravest of the brave. Other returned soldiers targeted Mac for a sweeter experience. They would turn up beaming with their girl on their arm, hoping that Mac could perform an on-the-spot marriage service. Mac's secretary in Melbourne in the mid-twenties recalled acting as an impromptu bridesmaid several times a week. Mac was especially interested to hear of the diggers who he had brought to Christ and saved, a wealthy farmer whose only son had died at Gallipoli after being saved for Christ by Mac, had written his father some beautiful letters about how his life had changed so wonderfully, thanks to Mac. The father wrote to Mac, I sent him forth with joy and gladness to fight for the empire, but somehow it never entered my calculations that he would be killed. The news came with stunning effect. There were only three courses left to me. To seek solace in drink, to despair, for that read, commit suicide, or God, and I found him. I found him. Up until then, I was a nominal Christian, but my life was a denial of that which I professed to believe. But now I have found joy and salvation in my boy's Saviour. I shall meet him again in the presence of that Saviour who he found on the battlefield and whom I have found through his death. Typical of the men returning from the war, Mac was deeply damaged by his experiences. Mac had said the horrors that he had witnessed on Gallipoli and especially the fighting at Lone Pine and then on the Neck had aged him 15 years. Barely a night went by when Mac was able to sleep normally, free from his constant nightmares. Most nights he slept on the floor because of his constant screaming as the demons of the horror of war that he'd lived through came to haunt him. His wife left her recollections of some of these rantings, with Mac saying, Yes, Jim, I'll tell them. Yes, I'll kiss them for you. Here, lad, drink this and God be with you. Then would come a shout of warning, snatches of a burial service, some words of prayer, cries, sobs, a spasmodic leap for life. Or he would be searching, searching for trenches he could not find, or trying to gather a body blown to fragments. Back home in Australia, Mac kept up the same blistering pace that he had when he was with the boys of the Anzac. One of the more famous people he met and dined with included dining with Edward the Prince of Wales, who later abdicated for the love of his life, Wallace Simpson, on 11 December 
1936. But that's a long way into the future. Mac was one of those rare people who could easily mix with everyone, from the king to the most humble of the king's subjects. One example was the royal visit to Australia in mid-1920 by Edward, then the Prince of Wales, in early 1936. Following the death of his father, King George V, Edward was to become King Edward VIII from 21st January 1936 until his abdication on 11 December 1936, so he could marry Wallace Simpson. I can't help but think that Mac and the Prince hit it off, both disliked fuss, pretension and snobbishness. Besides dining with the Prince later, Mac had also been on the street with a crowd of veterans as the Prince's open-topped car drove through the city. As the Prince approached, Mac led the men in the traditional hymn, Abide With Me, which I played earlier in this program. Although the Prince rendered limited service during the war, the Australians called him the Digger Prince. His visit was seen as an acknowledgement by Great Britain of the major contribution Australia made to the Empire in fighting and winning the war. General Monash spoke during the war and after it of the major work done by the Salvation Army with the Anzacs. He had apparently never met Mac, but he would have undoubtedly heard about what he was doing. General Birdwood, the commander of the Australian 1st Division, did know Mac and well, and made many comments of praise about him and his work. General Birdwood's praise for the work of the Salvation Army expressly mentioned Mac. When Mac was being sent home to Australia, as General Birdwood shook his hand, he said, I am indeed very sorry to lose your services. I cannot begin to tell you how much I have appreciated all you have done for our boys, with, I know, great self-sacrifice, and may I add, complete success. In her book, Anzac Padre, author Adelaide R. Cow wrote, Padre Mac was particularly friendly with all the higher commanders, especially General Birdwood, General H.B. Walker and General Smythe, commander of the 1st Australian Brigade. General Birdwood would often say, well, Mac, how are the men today? Do you think they are in good trim? On ceremonial parade before the march past, I have heard him say, Come on, Mac, we will see the march past and judge how they are. In this, Birdwood would gain knowledge of the morale and fitness for action of his troops, because Mac could give him information from an angle which he himself was not able to see. Mackenzie's shrewd judgment and close contact with the men throughout the 1st Australian Division enabled him to gauge their temper, state of health and general condition. World War II would soon be coming. What would Mac be doing? Slowing down was not in Mac's genes. In February 1927, he took up the post of Territorial Commander of the Salvation Army in China. This was a troubled time. Chiang Kai-shek was trying to keep power. Mao Zedong was on the scene and trying to take it from him. China was in the middle of a terrible famine which brought back memories of the suffering that Mac had had to deal with, although in a different form, during the Great War. Mac didn't speak Chinese, he had to speak through an interpreter. For a little while that slowed Mac down and took the edge off his preaching, but he soon regained his stride. Let me illustrate. In May 1929 he was travelling with his wife Annie, a subordinate in the Salvation Army, Adjutant Bruce, and his interpreter, Ensign Kuo. In a field, Mac found himself in competition with a local Communist Party spokesman. 
This turned into a duel between preaching the Christian religion and the communist religion. The Communist Party spokesman was no competition for Mac, even speaking no Chinese, and he had to give up and leave. In the early 1930s, Mac and his wife left China. On his unannounced return to Melbourne, large crowds met him and continued to swarm after him wherever he went. The Melbourne Age wrote, There is no more picturesque personality or better loved man in Australia than Commissioner W.N. Mackenzie, MC of the Salvation Army. Mac finally retired from the Salvation Army duties on 1 March 1939. When war broke out in September 1939, Mac, at the age of 69, volunteered for service again. But Mac was now suffering serious decline in his health, hardly surprising for a man of his age, and the man who had driven himself mercilessly before World War I, and even more during the war, constantly exposing himself to danger. His phenomenal memory was now mostly gone, and the ravages of time were showing. In 1945, General George Carpenter of the Salvation Army visited Mac in his new home in the Sydney suburb of Earlwood, choked with emotion at seeing his old friend. Reduced to such a state, he broke down in the middle of a prayer, he was saying with Mac. Mac calmly picked up where General Carpenter had broken down and finished it for him. At the annual reunion of the Gallipoli Legion in 1947, Salvation Army Brigadier Arthur McElveen, who had been a popular chaplain at Tobruk, in World War II, and was also nicknamed Padre Mac, told the men, I have been to see your old Padre fighting Mac. If he were here, I know he would have you singing, I carry my sunshine wherever I go. With one accord, the 150 or more men all over the building spontaneously burst out singing the words of the familiar chorus. Afterwards, crowding around the brigadier, they begged him to take their greetings to fighting Mac. One officer wrote his name on the souvenir program saying, because of what fighting Mac did for us, I would like to write my wishes in three words. God bless you. On 21 June 1947, Mac and his wife, Annie, celebrated their 48th wedding anniversary just over a month later. On 26 July 1947, Mac left this earthly life to begin his eternal life with God. He was 77 years old. His funeral service and those attending his graveside was overwhelmingly large, with people paying their last respects. He was buried at Rookwood Cemetery at sunset. The last post was played by two trumpeters. One was a man who had been a former soldier who had served with him. Six years after Mac's death, the following incident was recorded in the Salvation Army paper, The War Cry, an exchange between an older man and a younger woman wearing the uniform of the Salvation Army. The man said, I see you belong to the Salvation Army, said a man senior to Major Mildred Herper, while they were travelling through a Sydney suburb on Anzac Day. Then he told her that the day before, he and some of his mates had been out to the cemetery to visit the grave of Fighting Mac. We, we cannot do anything for him now, the man said, but we have done all that we can do out of respect for his memory. He did not know that he was speaking to a niece of the late Fighting Mac. In 1925, Mac delivered the Christmas address to the influential Melbourne Legacy Club. The members were business and commercial leaders in the city who had served as officers of the AIF. Mac's remarks are as true today as they were then. He said, 
The greatness of our nation, I need not remind you, does not rest upon the possession of arms and goods and gold. These are secondary to the ideals and high ethical standards that make a great nation. The Chinese Academy of Social Sciences not many years ago concluded that one of the West's greatest strengths was Christianity. It said that we were asked to look into what accounted for the preeminence of the West all over the world. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we have realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West has been so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubts about this. The reason for the left's never-ending attacks on Christianity can be seen in this accurate appraisal. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings starting at 10.30am. Probably the best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum anywhere in the world, borrowing from the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer. Probably the best beer in the world. If you liked this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE.